Drink ale by the fire, but slide on the ice. Buy a steed when it's lanky, a sword when it's rusty. Feed thy horse neath the roof and thy hound in the yard. Such is good advice for anyone, but this next apothem specifically cautions a woman who's being wooed by a man. Now plainly I speak, since both I have seen, unfaithful is man to maid. We speak them fairest when thoughts are falsest, and while the wisest of hearts. That is the Viking way of counseling a young woman to beware the flattery of her suitors. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. What you just heard were stanzas 82 and 89 of the Havamal, as translated by Olive Bray in 1908. In Old Norse, the word Havamal means sayings of the High One, referring to Odin, the Norse god who fallen Vikings looked forward to meeting if permitted to enter Valhalla. Odin was visualized as an elderly man with a beard. He was tall and had only one eye because, as the mythology states, he had traded the other eye in exchange for wisdom. So what is the Havamal? According to Encyclopedia Britannica, the Havamal is a heterogeneous collection of 164 stanzas of aphorisms, homely wisdom, counsels, and magic charms that are ascribed to the Norse god Odin. Another sample of the wisdom contained therein, breaking bow or flaring flame, ravening wolf or croaking raven, routing swine or rootless tree, waxing wave or seething cauldron, flying arrows or falling billow, half-burned house or horse too swift, be never so trustful as to trust these. Setting aside Norsemen, when it comes to the Bible, you may have heard it said that Solomon was, and by many still is, considered the wisest person ever to walk this planet. That honorable sobriquet was ascribed to him not for any arbitrary reason, but because God had ordained it. For in the first book of the Kings, God told Solomon, Behold, I am giving you a wise and perspicacious mind, like none that has been seen before you, or that will be seen again after you. Solomon assumed the throne of Israel as a young man, following the death of his father, David. As the daunting and weighty kingship impended, Solomon described himself as but a small child compared to the responsibilities of the crown set before him. So Solomon already exhibiting the wisdom that would one day define him, turned to God and cast his concerns before that even greater throne. He asked the Lord for an understanding mind, one that would allow him to govern Israel, God's people, worthily and well. Because the plea was so noble, God granted Solomon his desire, saying, Because you have asked for yourself not longevity, or riches, or your enemies' lives, but for wisdom of discernment. 
Lo, I now do according to your desire. About a thousand years after God spoke those words to Solomon, Jesus preached a sermon in which he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will follow after. If Jesus had wanted to give an example of how that works, he might have mentioned Solomon, who sought not self-serving wheel, but God's own kingdom, which for him meant being a wise and capable ruler for his people. After having made that selfless request, God not only granted Solomon the wisdom, but indeed a non-parial discernment that was unrivaled throughout the ages, before, during, and after him. Furthermore, not only that, but God additionally gave him the wealth, riches, and honor for which he did not ask, and with the added promise that if he kept God's commandments, then he would also have longevity. The typically laconic author of First Kings nevertheless allotted an entire chapter for the enumeration of Solomon's wealth and describing how his riches and wisdom were overwhelmingly impressive to the visiting queen of Sheba, who herself praised the king by saying, Oh, I have heard rumors about your wisdom and wealth, but I refused to believe them until I had seen for myself. But look, everything they have told me is true, but they didn't tell me the half of it. What you have surpasses even the most fantastic reports. Happy are they who are with you, and spend their days in earshot of your wisdom. For those of us, however, who are not privileged to stand in Solomon's court and listen to him meet from the throne, we can still experience some of his God-gifted percipients. For in the Bible, there is the book of Proverbs. The vast majority of the roughly 800 Proverbs contained therein is attributed to the wise king. A few examples of Solomon's wisdom. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. When there are no oxen, there is a clean manger, but there are abundant crops by the strength of an ox. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps through the harvest is a shameful son. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. But reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Pay attention to your enemies, for they are the first to discover your mistakes. Now, some of you caught me in my lark, and know that that last one was from Antisthenes, but the first four were from Solomon, as recorded in the book of Proverbs. All in all, however, when reading through the wisdom of Solomon, one cannot help but admire the vast, eclectic panoply of topics. Truly, Solomon provides a maxim for all of life's many encounters. Yet, amidst the diversity, there are two ubiquitous themes that turn up again and again. The first is the avoidance of foolishness. That is, do not be a fool. The Proverbs are full of admonishments against foolishness and vituperations for those who play the part. Solomon said that, A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. So what makes a fool? One description from the wise king himself, 
The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Foolishness is something that is probably within all of us. Perhaps it is inherent, but it can be unlearned. Now, some people might be more inclined, and some less inclined, to act like a fool, but it is the duty of everyone to grow out of it. Like ignorance, no person is born with an understanding of all things, so we must all take effort to learn what we do not know and fill the gaps of our knowledge. Indeed, I cannot fault you for your ignorance, but I can fault you for your lack of effort to correct it. In a similar way, I cannot be unduly frustrated by your foolishness, but it is your obligation and my duty, yes, duty, to rebuke you if you are not seeking to outgrow that foolishness. So, how does one mature? By seeking wisdom. Fools think only of themselves and ignore the knowledge of others, but it is the wise who consider and weigh the advice of their fellows. Thus Solomon said, By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. In the Bible, wisdom does not pertain to only discernment and understanding of worldly things. Wisdom is centered upon God and contemplation of divine things. It is not the clever one who is wise, but the one who seeks after God's ways and fervently tries to follow them. This brings us to the second major leitmotif of Proverbs. The key to success in life is trust in, and obedience to, God. You may realize, of course, that the two major themes, avoid foolishness and trust God, are really one and the same, opposite sides of a single coin. If you wish success, don't be foolish, be wise. A wise person follows God and, therefore, when you trust in and follow God, life will begin to work out. Be smart about the world, yes. Consider your actions. Emulate the proper people. Don't be lazy. Understand cause and effect. But at the end of the day, what is most important, and what truly governs the outcome of your life, is the zealousness with which you chase after God. Do you put effort into seeking the divine? Do you strive to understand the will of God and abide by it in the best way you know how? Do you trust in the Lord more than you trust in people, even in yourself? If so, the Proverbs tell us, you will have good success. Trust in the Lord, and you will have good success. In the Old Ways, Season 2, Episode 1, we learn that God told Joshua the same thing. Do not turn away from the law of Moses, neither right nor left, that you may have good success and act wisely wherever you go. Perhaps King Solomon even had those words in mind as he designed his apothems and advice for the world. Yet while such is a wonderful guiding principle, 
Our question today, if we can ask it reverently, is why does that advice not work? Though the good book says that trust in the Lord will be met with success, why is that not always the case? Aside from the unfalsifiable, though not necessarily unfounded claim, that one is never doing quite enough, there is an intuition that, sometimes, Solomon's advice just doesn't work out. We say, lucky is he who plants a pebble and grows a potato. But we know that even when you till the earth and fertilize the soil, even when you plow deep and straight and true, and plant and water, sometimes the crops never grow. Why does no good deed go unpunished? Why are Christ followers persecuted and killed, while their oppressors rule the land and go unpunished? Why does she who gives selflessly to charity still fear repossession? Why does the moon shine on the good and evil alike? Indeed, why does bread not fall but on the buttered side? Jesus said, that rain falls on both the righteous and unrighteous, because God loves them both. And he also told his followers that the vine dresser prunes the branches so that they might bear more fruit, echoing Solomon's proverb that a loving father will not spare his child the rod. But dwelling on theodicy and the questions about good, evil, and their baffling coexistence is for philosophers. What about just getting through life? We want to somehow resolve Solomon's insistence that following the Lord will go well for us with our experiences which often seem contradictory. Thankfully, the wise king is also credited with the book of Ecclesiastes, another teaching book that is designed to help us work through life's difficult questions and balance the promises of the Proverbs with the vanity, futility, and uncertainty of our own human lives and our attempts to control it. The psalmist said, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Yet Solomon, in Ecclesiastes, countered this idea when he said, Behold, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. So the question is, who gets the bread? Does it come to the righteous, or is it random? If time and chance happen to them all, then what does righteousness earn? Surely not the security of food. Who gets the bread? The righteous or the random? Both? Neither? Perhaps it's the time-dependent function. We insist that the one true God is not capricious like fulminous Zeus of thunder. Neither is the one true God fickle like we humans. Rather, we believe that the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the great I Am, blessed be the name, the God whom Jesus preached, is a God of justice and purpose, 
righteousness, and meaning, as the proverb which says, Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. For Joshua was told that if he obeyed the Lord, then he could expect good success, and Solomon mirrored the same. And yet, we often feel otherwise. How does the Bible address this contradiction? Indeed, it acknowledges it. Through the anthology of the wisdom books, the Bible says, I know what you're thinking, and you're not crazy. Bread should come to the righteous. But sometimes, that's not the case. In fact, sometimes it feels almost random, like time and chance happen to them all. Sometimes you can spare no effort when rearing children. You can raise them up in the law of God, like Solomon advises you. Yet they can still wander off the path. You can wear your seatbelt and use your turn signal, yet still die in a vehicle wreck. And if Job was the best among us, the most righteous man alive, blameless and upright before the Lord, then why did he suffer more than all the rest? The Bible is definitive, as corroborated by human experience. It tells us that these things happen. What we want, though, is an explanation. But when it comes to exposition, the Bible is reticent, and the only answer we receive is that these things happen, that God is a God of mysteries, and that the things God sees are different than the things we see. Sometimes, oftentimes even, it won't make good sense to us, and that's because it's not ours to understand. Prudence is to be observed. Sow seed in planting season, reap crop in harvest season. But sometimes it just won't grow. And when we trust God, but things don't work out, it doesn't mean that God is untrustworthy, and it doesn't mean that we didn't do enough or uphold our end of the deal, and it doesn't mean that it's all a game of chance. In the Bible, we have the book of Proverbs, full of its pithy gems. But we need a fuller picture. We need to supplement Proverbs with books like Ecclesiastes and Job, which help flesh out our understanding, that we might grow out of foolishness and into wisdom. There is a complex reality of life and nature that cannot be contained within a single verse, nor even a single book. So the Proverbs remind us that we have a duty to conduct our lives in a sensible manner, and we have an obligation to do our part in shaping our own outcomes. But the Proverbs are balanced by Ecclesiastes, which reminds us that believing we can control life is vanity. We are each but a cog in a great apparatus that revolves around something other than ourselves. Sometimes, the universe will yield its own outcome, and God's will be done regardless of my feelings about it, or preparations to obviate it. As the great Robbie Burns said, But mousy, thou art to know thy lane, in proving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes, O mice and men, gang off to gly. Finally, to contemplate the motives of God and ask if his ways are worth trusting, we must needs turn to Job, who reminds us that our perspectives of life 
are infinitesimal when compared against God's infinite vantage point. Our views are too narrow to pass judgment on the nature of good and evil, woes, ails, and ills, success, prosperity, and the like, let alone speak to what ought to happen. I am not the judge. God is. So how on earth can I, with limited ambit, limited understanding, limited experience, pass judgment and arbitrate the question, who gets the bread? There is a very famous scene in the seventh chapter of Acts, where in one of the earliest Christians, a man named Stephen, charged with blasphemy, was brought before the Jewish council, for he had been preaching and performing miracles by the name of Jesus. In the peroration of his defense, Stephen rebuked the congregation and accused them of rejecting and persecuting God's prophets through the ages, including their refusal to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. He said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. But at the climax of his oration, Stephen announced that he saw a vision of heaven wherein Jesus was seated at the right hand of God. Responding to his proclamation, which the council considered blasphemous, they took Stephen and stoned him to death, as he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, yet do not hold the sin against them. Stephen lived out God's commission to spread the good news of Jesus, yet he was repaid with death. His obedience to God's commands did not result in his and his family's security, let alone prosperity. His obedience resulted in martyrdom. The same goes for Simon Peter the Apostle, who is known as Cephas. He served as the rock and leader of the Inquit faith, and he met his end not with comfort, but with crucifixion. Indeed, all but one of the apostles were killed because of their belief in Jesus. Paul, who wrote many of the New Testament's epistles and served Jesus like none other, also met hardship like none other. From his own words, he said, Five times I received forty lashes less one. Three times I received beatings with rods. One time I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day, I was adrift in the ocean. In my travels to preach the gospel, often am I in danger of water, danger of robbers, danger of my own countrymen, danger of foreigners, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, without food, in cold and exposure, and in addition to all this, I am daily worried for the church. And elsewhere, Paul described his experience as 
dying daily because he was so constantly at risk while preaching the gospel. Does it make sense that faithful service to God is rewarded with these hardships and peripatia and ill fortunes? Is such the requisite for following God's will? It begs the question if the angels too suffer thusly for their obedience. Indeed, we ask, is the Christ follower any better off than the heathen? This is the question. What is the worth of wisdom when it doesn't seem to pay off? What's the point of listening to Solomon's advice? Why abide his exhortations to seek and follow God? If we posit that it doesn't always work out to follow God, then we must first address what it means to work out. If we say that things don't always fall into place, then what assumptions are we making about where things should fall? Now, if we expect Fantasy Island, like the riches of Solomon, then we are not likely to receive it. If we seek security, then maybe God will grant it. But then again, maybe not. But if we believe that God will take care of us, then we are probably right. But then it comes down to a question of needs. Maslow said that, at a bare minimum, we need our physiological needs met. But it's not uncommon for God to deny those needs. That's because, at the end of the day, it is neither water nor food, nor air nor warmth that we need. For there is a deeper need, and that need is God. And God will strip away everything else to help us realize that. The need for God is the only one that God ever said would be fulfilled. God said, I will be with you. And you know what? That's good enough. In fact, that's more than enough. It's more than you could ever want or need. God with you is the desire in all desires, the desire of all desires, the fulfillment within every fulfillment. Indeed, if you have God, if you walk so closely with the divine that it feels like you're really stepping together, and if you get near enough to behold God's radiance, then all other desires will fall away like so many leaves in autumn. Paul did not need a soft pillow for his head, for he had God, and God was his rest. Paul did not need his physical health, so he took the lashes, because he had God, and God is more than body. And Paul exchanged his life for the gospel of Christ, because the privilege of spreading God's good news is better than even life itself. And Peter, when he met his end on a Roman cross, did not rue the day that he had met Jesus. He didn't regret the path that led to his death. But after a life of service to the Lord, his thoughts were that he was undeserving of the honor of dying as his Lord Jesus did. Therefore Peter insisted that, instead, he be crucified upside down. And in that way, he died. In such tales, I do not hear regrets or sorrows, and I cannot believe that any of the martyrs 
from those early days through to our present era, has ever said, I would rather have had warm clothes, or I wish that I hadn't been so hungry so often. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will follow after. But here's the secret. Once you get God, you don't even want anything else. All you want is God, and God is all you need. To everything else, the response is, Thank you, Lord, I do appreciate it, but I would have been just as good without it. Or, like Martin Luther King said, Like anybody, I would like to have a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. So now we turn, one last time, to Solomon and press him. Solomon, as the wisest man on earth, you want me to chase after God, hearken to the divine voice, and obey? But what's the point, and what's in it for me if not a guarantee of success? Solomon, what is the worth of wisdom? Perhaps the king replies, It's worth what you let it be. For your selfishness, it has little value. But if you define your success, as God defines your success, then this wisdom is worth everything. As we conclude today's discussion, let us consider these verses, penned by an anonymous soldier of the American Civil War. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn to humbly obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power, that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness, that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life, that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost, despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am, among all men, most richly blessed. Thank you for listening to Stories of Symmetry. I'm Ben Laboot, and I hope that you'll join again in two weeks for the next episode titled Et Lux Erat. Remember also to visit storiesofsymmetry.com for blogs, episodes, and more. We're also available on Facebook and Instagram at Stories of Symmetry. If this podcast helps you find beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all, then share it with your friends and consider subscribing. Go with God. Go in peace. <laughs>